stay hungry, stay foolish. Okay, so now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome Ash Moria, CEO and founder of Lean Stack, author of Running Lean and Scaling Lean. Welcome to the show. Pleasure to be on, Aiden. Real pleasure to have you, man. I've read Running Lean and I'm halfway through Scaling Lean and it's so relevant beyond the startup to the actual big corporate of today. And we're going to touch on that later. But to start with, it'd be great to get a rundown of what Running Lean teaches us and what makes a successful startup. Sure. So being an entrepreneur myself, I got very interested in the process of building things. And, and like a lot of people out there, I had lots of great ideas, but not all of them went on to become great products or great business models. And so that created a problem for me after a while, because I wanted to figure out at the start, all these ideas looked very promising, but at some point, a couple of years down the road, they weren't. So what was what was wrong um, and, and, and how can I um, better vet my ideas? That was really what inspired me to get started. So Running Lean was my attempt at codifying my lessons learned. Um, some of the mistakes that I made, I began blogging about it, eventually got turned into a book. And one of the things that I did as part of writing the book was teach some of these ideas. And I began to see lots of patterns. I began to see that really everyone out there was fundamentally making the same high-level mistakes. And one of the biggest pitfalls that I point out now is this notion of the innovator's bias or the entrepreneurial bias. And that's where we as entrepreneurs, as innovators, tend to prematurely fall in love with our solution. And then we spend every waking moment trying to just brute force that solution. And that isn't the optimal way to build what customers want. Yeah, that really makes sense because when, when you read Running Lean and you, you look at the innovator's bias, you, you, you see that we all do this. We all have this bias towards something that we fall in love with, trying to square peg that into a round hole. And that, that leads to 9 out of 10 startups failing, as you say, and 60%, 66% having to drastically change their original plans in some way. But one, one of the great ways I kind of looked at your when I read your work it reminded me of um, the Thomas Edison quote that uh, he didn't he didn't find he didn't fail he actually found 10,000 ways that won't work and that really resonated with me because you talk about this constant constant iteration and that iteration only comes from actually shipping the product not doing a business plan none of that work it's actually by getting the product out the door that you actually innovate Absolutely. And, and, and that's, that's, that's where the learning feedback loop begins to come in is that we may have some, you know, grand schemes and grand ideas, but the only test is when that idea has impact with its customers and based on what they do, not what they say they'll do, but based on what they do, we sometimes have to adjust our ideas. So again, there's a big difference. I don't want to make it sound like we just need to go out and and do a bunch of focus groups and surveys and ask customers what they want, because I wish life were that easy. But Steve Jobs said it well when he said it's not the customer's job to know what they want, because oftentimes they just don't. Um, they can describe what they're trying to achieve and what problems they're running into. And that's the key there. So that's why in the Running Lean book, I talk about um, uncovering what customers want in a two-phase process. 
we have to first get inside their heads and really understand their problems deep enough. And only then can we begin to formulate solutions. And sometimes the solution we have in our mind may not work and we have to adjust and tweak, refine along the way. And that's where the iterations come in. So rather than doing big bang product launches, uh, the big message or the key message in, in running lean and the lean startup in general is run small and fast additive iterations or experiments to test those along the way. Yeah, and, and you you talk often about the lean startup and the lean startup work, but your work was concurrent to that, wasn't it? The, the lean startup, Eric Reese's work and your work were at the same time. It was almost like this kind of synergy of thinking that happened around the same time. Yeah, it was a dialogue. So I would I, I would say that it's it's the funny thing with with um, with ideas in general is that if you look at a telephone, it was invented by two people um, at the same time, and they weren't collaborating. It just happened to be the time for the telephone. Um, so similarly, I think a lot of the what I've kind of retrospectively look, seen is a lot of the conditions for thinking about what became the lean startup were there. Um, you know, the world changed. It was easier to build products. But not, but still, the odds of success were dismal because we were building stuff nobody wanted, and so that's what Eric began to talk about. Why does that happen? Steve Blank and a whole bunch of people kind of were talking about similar things, and we all influenced each other. I, I, I was heavily influenced by both Steve Blank and Eric Ries, but I would say that I stumbled into the problem firsthand and was already searching for solutions. Um, one of the things that I also think is a bit of a extension or, or what's different about what I do is that I took some of the experimental mindset from what Eric was talking about with the Lean Startup and really front loaded it with the concept of business modeling. Um, so in the past, we would go and write elaborate business plans. Um, nobody enjoys doing that. It takes a lot of time. And at the end, it just seems like a waste of time. Um, but at the, at, at the same, by the same token, you still need to have some plan in place. And that's where I began, again, looking for alternatives and ran into this thing called the business model canvas, refined it into what became the one page business model, the lean canvas. Um, and I would say that in some ways is the contribution as well. So I look at my work as being kind of business modeling meets um, in some ways systems thinking, which we may talk about with the second book, meets the lean startup. And it's really a, a synthesis or synergy of all three things um, can, that, that all come together and make I, in my mind, the whole kind of being greater than the sum of the parts. And, and the beauty of it is you you, you experience these problems. I, I love this because your background was you experienced this problem yourself. And it's a typical kind of innovator in that you can't just sit on that problem. You actually have to go and obsess on the problem to actually find the correct solution. And you found the correct solution for yourself as an entrepreneur. And through that, you've built your whole business out of that. And you, you like the lean, the lean uh, canvas because I read the the business model generation book and the business model canvas. I used that the whole time, and then I found running lean, and I was like, this is way more relevant as some for somebody building a product, so building an app or whatever it is for for your for your customer. This actually fits the the perfect model. Where 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 it always becomes a problem though, and we'll touch on this later on is when yep. you are forced by a CFO or somebody from the old traditional world of business who goes, no, I want a business plan. And the business plan, as you say often, is not read, but you have to go through that painful process of the business plan when your one-page diagram of your, of, your, of your lean canvas is actually your Bible. Yeah. I mean, 
ultimately it's it's the conversation that matters. So if I can get into a room with you and in 20, 30 minutes, if I can present my idea to you, but not just uh, with the innovator's bias. So the innovator's bias would be something like I'm building something awesome. You know, give me resources, give me money, give me my team and 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 let me go build it and then it'll be great. Um, so that's not a very good pitch. So you still have to get down to what are those critical assumptions? What are, you know, what could go wrong? How will this work? Um, but you don't need a full business plan to do it. And that's the beauty of the Lean Canvas is that with just a one page slide, you can get across 80% of your idea. And then with the conversation, you get to the other remaining 20%. And what ensues is a whole bunch of feedback and conversation, which is it, which is really the goal of even the business plan. But as you said, because no one reads it, you don't ever get to that point. Yeah, and so it's often the the idea killer. It it, it stops you because <laughs> when you're dealing with the future, you can't project revenues, and it often doesn't get you to that point. And you, you talk about it is that the learning doesn't happen during the building or the 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 iteration of the build of whatever product you're you're going to build. It's actually with the it's actually with the shipping of it of actually getting it to customers, getting it out into the real world, and just testing over and over. And That's right. uh, have you any advice for, for those, say, entrepreneurs, people who are stuck inside a big corporate and are trying to break the inertia of thinking, of the old world thinking? Do you have any advice for those guys? So I guess the good news is that that problem is well known as well. So for decades, we know that we have to innovate, um, otherwise we'll get disrupted. So that's, that's the good news. Um, and maybe what makes that even more acute is that the pace of innovation has been accelerating. So more and more industries are getting disrupted. Look at the newspapers, look at um, you know, all kinds of media. You can go to many different spaces, even like listing sites, you know, job sites, they're all getting disrupted um, by the next Google, the next Facebook, the next whatever that's coming down the pipeline. And so we all know that that problem exists. So that's why there is there's this hunger for finding solutions to the problem. Um, at the same time, what's different in kind of the lean approach is that we place a lot of emphasis on, as you kind of described it, not not the build, but rather the measure and the learn, and more specifically with respect to customers. So the advice that I often will give people is they really have to find better and faster ways of getting their ideas in the hands of customers. And sometimes, you know, more easily said than done, but some of the best success stories I found in large corporates have been the entrepreneurs that tend to ask for permission later. So they go out outside the building, um, they'll do some small scale testing with a customer. And this isn't, when I say small scale testing, this doesn't have to put the brand on the line. It doesn't have to go and do anything that will get you fired. It's really having a conversation, gathering evidence that this is a problem worth solving, getting customer commitments to saying, you know, here's a price, would you accept it? You know, you can do all of these types of things without really getting into trouble. And so some of the best teams I found, you know, went out and some of these teams are, are you know, in conservative industries like banks. And there was one that was a big telecom company, but they went out there and interviewed a handful of their customers, came back to their managers and said, look, there's a problem that's underserved. And if we did, if we solved it this way, that could be a really interesting business model. And here's how that might work. And they present a one page in canvas with the customer based evidence. And those teams didn't get fired. They actually got, you know, limited time, but more resources to go and explore the idea. And that is a key message is that we can see the future. So really the process is really one of 
searching rather than executing. You can't really execute on an idea that you are uncertain about, but we can definitely search for possibilities and rule out the ones that will never work and double down on the ones that do. And that's ultimately what this process is about. Yeah, because you talk about the learning is the measure of progress, not the actual shipping of the product, because you can ship a product nobody wants. And can we touch on that for a sec? Because this idea of constant learning is something people are only getting used to, because you see people going into big corporates and they, they get these almost linear jobs that are very specified. And it's kind of like I-shaped worker versus a T-shaped or an O-shaped worker who constantly learns in, in an infinity loop of learning. And that, that's, a, that's a huge shift that's happened in the world as well. Yeah, yeah. And, and so again, when you embrace that fast feedback loop, you know, the, the learning does come very quickly and it comes in these small bursts. Um, and then that's where, you know, going back to your Edison code, this notion of failure goes away, right? So if every week, um, and you can do this every day, by the way, but let's just say every week you are having some interaction with customers. These could be a customer conversation, you know, could be an interview, could be showing them some mock-ups, showing them some demos, um, and getting real actionable feedback. If you're doing that every single week, as you change the product, as you change your mind, I would I would really challenge you to call that failing. I mean, that's just you adjusting uh, to something that works. And that's the beauty of this is that when you incorporate such small and fast feedback loops in the process, you're really just course correcting your idea from what you thought you would build to what you actually build. And because you're involving customers, you actually end up building things that they do want at the end. And it's a co-creation process. Um, and that and that's the beauty of all of it is that you end up building things that, that customers want um, and avoid the big bang failures where it's all you know, guesswork execution. And then the moment of truth is when you ship and then you realize you are off by a lot. Yeah, and and you're inevitably going to be off a certain amount, but you you give this beautiful framework of how to how to to work on experiments, and you talk about the seven habits of experiments. Could we touch on that for a second, Ash? Sure. Um, actually, maybe just to set the stage, I would say that this idea of iteration. Um, you know, I, I do come from a software background, and so in software there are there, there's a discipline of Scrum or Agile that's very popular nowadays and that is this notion of taking a big project breaking into small pieces usually two week at a time three week at a time iterations and then getting together with your team to review progress and all that works the only difficulty with that is that we are still measuring build velocity we're measuring how quickly can we build this big project in these small iterations but if we end up building something nobody wants because there was a fundamental assumption that was wrong all we prove to ourselves is that we can build something nobody wants on time and on budget and nobody wants that. So in the scaling lead book, before even getting to experiments, I kind of expose this notion of what I call a lean sprint. So take the same two week cycle. And if it's, if it's too short for what I'm going to describe, make it three weeks or make it four weeks. But in that time frame, don't just build stuff. You've got to build something, you've got to put it in front of customers and then measure some something as a result of it, some reaction, some action that comes out of it. And that is what will fuel the learning loop. And so when you're designing experiments, you have to break them down into those three phases. There's a build phase. Um, and before you even build, you have to start. I don't know if we'll get through all seven of the habits, but I'll at least outline the most, the most common ones. Um, one of the most important thing is declaring outcomes up front. 
So a lot of the lean approach comes from the scientific method and would be unheard of for scientists just to go into labs and start mixing a bunch of compounds just to see what they can do. And we tend to do those types of things. You know, we, we build some product, uh, you know, some features, and then we throw it out there to see what happens. And that is not a very good way to run an experiment. So we have to declare outcomes up front. And that is key because otherwise post-rationalization sets in. So no matter what the outcome is, there is going to be an outcome. And we will often unconsciously rationalize it saying, oh, I expected that or this was just a bad time to launch. We'll try again next month. Um, and that's not a very healthy way to hold ourselves accountable. Typically, when we do that, we give ourselves all kinds of excuses for not achieving business model goals. And eventually we run out of time, run out of resources, all those things happen. And we just kill the project without really learning anything. Um, so a much better approach is for every experiment you run, declare an outcome up front. Um, and then, you know, the, in, in the book, I describe some steps for doing that and some some techniques and even tricks for doing it, because oftentimes we are scared to make bold declarations because we don't, we're afraid of, you know, being proven wrong. Um, we are afraid of what our peers think. So I kind of share some tactical uh, things in there that might be helpful to overcome those. Uh, another key part when declaring outcomes is making sure they are falsifiable. And that's a big word that comes from the scientific method that simply means it has to be testable. Um, it has to be measurable. And so again, in the book, I go through some, some fragments that you can use. Um, but those are the two big ones. You want to make sure that they're, they're, you're declaring outcomes up front. You are making sure that they can be measured and, and tested. And then you want to time box your experiments. That one comes I mean, rather naturally for people, because otherwise we'll be waiting a long time. And then very important is to have a baseline. Um, if you are just going out there and coming up with numbers out of thin air or measuring conversion rates or, or, uh, or things like that with no benchmark or baseline, then again, you don't know if that was any good. So you need to have some baseline or benchmark. In the beginning, you can look at others in the industry. You can use some industry standard numbers. Um, you can start anywhere. You can just guess in the beginning. And then over time, I guarantee that as you begin to run experiments, your judgment just naturally improves. You actually begin to understand how customers react or don't to your ideas, to your features. And those predictions become a lot more um, accurate. And that's the goal is that if you can predict what your customers are going to do, you can, you're not going to be 100% certain. But if you can predict that upfront, that's usually when the business model begins to um, to kind of turn the course and start working, and that's when we get into product market fit and eventually scale. Yeah, and you you talked there, you mentioned there about the practical advice because you give some great advice about, in particular, putting putting it out there that this is what I expect to happen, and some some leaders or some management will struggle with that being false or being proven wrong. But I I think there's a there's a shift hopefully in the world towards the leader or the manager not having to have all the answers or not having to know the answers to every question that his team are more empowered but also this power shift moving towards the customer and you talk about this an awful lot in all your work is the customer first approach can we talk about that ash because I, I think people talk about that they talk a great game about being customer or audience focused but they don't right. deliver on that message yeah yeah yeah, I would say that we, we pay a lot of lip service to talking to customers. And I you know go back to that Steve Jobs quote is that if you simply ask them what they want, you often will build something that they don't really want because therein um, kind of lies another 
uh, bias. This time it's just maybe a human bias. But if you ask anyone for for a a, uh, a you know what what can I do for you, they will usually give you a solution. Um, but if they don't understand the problems themselves, then then it's going to be hard for you to actually solve anything for them. Um, so there is a whole bunch of techniques. And so we, if I go back to the Running Lean book, it's really solely, if I summarize it, it's really all about how do we build what customers want without asking them, you know, without asking them for the feature list, without asking them for the solution. And so it goes through a, a pretty methodical process for how you have to start with problems, how you have to uncover their their goals and obstacles and understand their existing alternatives and only then can you really begin to understand what solution might fit in their context um, and even like i said sometimes they don't even know that and that's where innovation lies innovation is not the job of customers that's really our jobs as the innovators um, so we own the solution box but we need the customer's help to uncover that um, so that's where this work begins to differ because a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, we talk to customers all the time. We run surveys, we run focus groups, uh, but those often miss the mark because, as I said, it, it's very hard to get a customer to tell you what's going to work. That's really our job to go figure out. Yeah, because most customers with declared data like survey data will just answer it because maybe some incentive to do it. But uh, I, I, I love to, a thing you talked about before because you talk about um, – market constraints and also behavioral change but one of the things you really talk about is commission for salespeople. so you talk about how to like the the beauty of the of your work is you cover every aspect because you are the customer or the reader of the book or the the actual receiver of this information as well as the creator of it but you talk about this with salespeople about certain certain incentives will will um will in, evoke certain behaviors and how to unlock the behaviors you want. Can we talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it really goes down to kind of this notion of, of spe- I call it the curse of specialization, is that as we have grown bigger, um, we've all specialized into kind of different skills and, and sales being one of them, you know, development or building is another design, another marketing, another. And so we all specialized and then to make work you know, to incentivize people, we come up with these local KPIs, key performance indicators. So I might go to my salesperson and say, if you sell more, I will pay you more. So I'll give you these commissions uh, and, and we'll do this monthly. So you're incentivized for the whole month to go and sell as much as you can. Um, on principle, it sounds great because people have this incentive. They're going to sell more. The problem we run into is that hum- that every every one of these business models or every one of these things is a system. And it kind of works in complex ways. And so the way I'll, I'll, I'll describe this is, let's say a salesperson is chugging along and it's the last week of the month and they haven't met their quota. Well, they want to make their commission. And so they're going to change tactics. Um, they might actually start getting aggressive on the calls. They might actually start pushing. Um, they, 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 they might actually start aggressively discounting or misrepresenting the product. Um, all kinds of things can be happening. And so as a result, what ends up happening is that they may make the sale, but the sale may not be the one that sticks. And studies have showed this. So people have found that customer retention is actually higher when they're sold to in the beginning of the month than at the end of the month. And if you study that even further, it's oftentimes because those customers were forced into a sale 
And they may not have bought the product under normal circumstances, but they did it because of some tactic or the other. And so when they had a chance to to cancel away or, or get rid of the product, they did. So in month two or month three, they were done and they left. And that's a huge expense. So in the short term, salesperson makes a commission, but the whole company serves this customer for two or three months and then they have to see them go away. That's an awful waste of all these resources. And it doesn't only happen to salespeople. So the way these KPIs work is that if we don't think of the business model outcome, if we don't think of the, of the whole as a system, we can start to optimize these local KPIs and run into the same issues. So I might go to a marketer and say, I want leads. I want, I want to be able to get leads into my system. And a good, good marketer will ask me, what's my budget? Because they can go and buy leads at every price point. They may not be any good, but they'll get me leads if that's all I care about. So if I don't tell them I want leads that will convert and I'm going to measure that conversion and make sure they're staying with us for 90 days or whatever my time frame is, um, I'll just get crappy leads because that's how they're going to get their commission. That's the easy work. They'll take it and, and be done. Um, so this this is something that we see everywhere. And so the, the antidote to that is this idea of thinking of the output of a business model as a whole. And that's why in my work, I have to go cross-discipline is that the lean approach cannot just work with developers. It can just work with marketers, can just work with designers, can just work with sales or marketing. We have to get a cross-functional team together. We have to understand the customer output that we are trying to achieve. And sometimes that customer output requires a marketing solution. Sometimes it requires a developer development or design solution. And, and we have to be ready for that. So that's why... It's a it's a very cross-functional, um, multidisciplinary type of a of a methodology. Yeah, and you can, you can really see your experience of being the CEO or the the puppet master, pulling all the different strings of the different departments, and and also the growth of those departments. You can that all comes true in the book, which is why it's such a valuable book. And the reason I, I really w wanted you to come on the show was to share that this your work is goes way beyond the, the world of the startup and goes into the innovator but or goes into traditional companies now and i know you're doing a lot of consultancy with traditional companies but before we go there the, the one one place i'd love to to finish here is, is before we finish negatively on the startup because eric reese says startups that succeed are those who manage to iterate enough times before running out of resources but then going back to an edison quote Many of life's failures are people who did not realize how close they were to success when they gave up. And what what I what I thought when I read both of those quotes was of your work because you you give the startup or the company every chance to succeed and you go and iterate iterate in constant in, in permanence. But, but when Ash do they call it? When do they call give up after maybe pivoting sixty six percent of time? What, when do they say enough is enough? So. The way that I, I address that dichotomy, yes, because on the one hand, we tell you, people you have to be, you have to persevere, you have to have grit, and that's the entrepreneurial trait. Without that, you're not going to survive. On the other hand, we say you've got, you know, you've, you've got to fail fast and move on, and they're they're both in in conflict with each other. But the way I, I reconcile that is by really focusing on a, a bunch of things. The, the first is really falling in, so encouraging innovators to fall in love with the problem and not the solution. So the challenge we get into is when we think that I'm going to build, if I use the Edison example, I'm going to build this particular type of light bulb. And because it's not ready for it, because a, a customer said, no, I'm just going to brute force that. Um, that usually is where we often go wrong. 
um, a much better. And so I often the, the analogy I give um, on that is that trying to start with a solution is like building a key and you don't quite know what door it's going to open. And so we can randomly a thousand times try every door we run into and you might get lucky. So I would say that in Edison's case, he was very brute force um, and he may have have given up while others, sorry, he, he actually persevered while, while others did not. And he, in some ways, got this solution out there. But it was still, at the end of the day, a problem worth solving. So there's never going to be uh, you know, a methodology or an, an answer that will cover all cases. But what I find is that a much better approach is rather than saying, I'm going to build a light bulb, you want to instead fall in love with the problem. So what is the problem out there? If you're using candles or, or things, you know, and, and he, of course, was aware of those problems and he was trying to solve it. And then it becomes a lot clearer. You have then you understand the dimensions or axes of what you have to do. Um, so when you know you're competing against a candle, um, you know what the light bulb has to do. And so it guides the direction you're going into. So if I say just go and brute, just go and build a light bulb, um, that's kind of scary. But if I, if you know what you have to do to to displace what people are using today, then it becomes a lot easier. So that's one part of the answer, which is fall in love with the problem, not the solution. And you see this as a pattern with many serial entrepreneurs. If I just use Ab Williams as an example, um, he started Blogger, he started Medium, he started Twitter. Um, he started a podcast thing in the middle, which didn't do too well. If you look at a common thread across all of them, they're all about communication. They're all about short form messaging, getting ideas out there. And so he's in love with that problem. And he has built many solutions along the way, some widely successful, some not so successful. But that to me is what I find as the common trait. So you have to be, you have to have perseverance and grit, but if you can channel it towards a customer and a big problem worth solving, then you will have kind of better chances of success. Um, as to the pivot question, um, I tend to, uh, in the newer work, I tend to um, describe goals and I, I tend to describe uh, time boxes as measures for when you know an idea is working or maybe when it's time to put on the back burner or even reset it. So a lot of this process is about evidence-based learning. So I guarantee if you kind of follow the, the, the methods that we describe and go and begin to talk to customers, um, when you start getting flat out no's, um, that's one thing. But when you get out flat out no's with reasons where customers tell you, I can't use your product because it's 10 times as expensive as what I'm already using and it works, there's no arguing with that. You know that that's not going to work. So either you find a way to, to reduce your costs, uh, sorry, reduce your price and make the business model work, or you go do something else. So a lot of this process is about getting informed learning in those iterations. And so what I find is that when people are pivoting, um, they're not pivoting because they gave up. They're pivoting because they got all the evidence they wanted that told them this idea is never going to work. And so they will switch directions. And so if you have a discipline of doing that and you time box what you're doing, um, I find that the pivot decisions become rather natural and that they're not much of a, of a challenge at that point. Um, hopefully that answered the question, but um, but it, so I would say it's a combination of setting a goal with a time box and then using the learning as a way to tell whether you're heading in the right direction or not. Yeah, um, and, the, so and, yeah. that, and that constant that constant iteration actually gives you that constant feedback if you're doing it right. Because again, I can't I can't emphasize enough how how the book actually does that for you. It gives you that framework, and if you follow it, yeah. it actually it works in permanence. But there's there's a lovely line, the tagline for running lean, and you talk about 
it's not about a better plan A, but a plan, but a path to a plan that works. And this is resonant on so many aspects because you you are doing a lot of work with corporates now about adopting a kind of an agile or lean approach to their 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 traditional business. And in a way, if you take that saying, it's but not about a better plan A. Most corporates are still making a better version of themselves so they may be becoming leaner or optimizing their business in some way but they're actually only becoming a better per- version of what they are in some t- some ways they're actually getting faster at their demise they're making their demise more rapid because they're out of sync with what's needed by the customer but you're you're now working with a lot of those, those uh, traditional companies to kind of bring in new thinking, new fresh thinking, new approaches to experiments. Can we touch on that, Ash, and, and talk about how those those corporates and those big older companies can learn from your models? Sure. So I I sometimes kind of joke with um with the bigger companies and and I tell them that a lot of startups die because they can't find enough customers to talk to. A lot of the bigger companies die because they stop talking to their own customers. And so that's when you begin to lose sight of what job the customer is trying to get done. And you go into, again, optimizing and execution mode where you make your products better, faster, cheaper. But fundamentally, if the customer's job has changed or there is some new tech out there that does something, you know, not incrementally, but disruptively, you know, 10x times better, uh, it doesn't even have to be 10x, it could be just 2x or 3x. Um, then at that point, there's just no conversation. You, you, your your 20% gains is not going to is not going to keep them. They're just going to switch away to something better. Um, so, a lot of my work starts out kind of the same way with entrepreneurs. And so, even though I I, I started a lot um, by talking and writing for startup entrepreneurs, um, I found that any early stage product has the same set of challenges, which is we live in a highly uncertain world. Um, we can build a lot of things, but the bigger question is knowing, will anyone care at the end of the day? And so when I go and share that message with big companies, I get lots of nodding heads, just like I do with the startups, because they've been there. They've gone and had these big initiatives, big ideas, and only learned that it's not going to work after they launch. So the, the problems and the symptoms and the, the pitfalls are all the same. And so it's very much the same process. And where things begin to differ are the tactics. So going back to my, you know, kind of the, the joke about them not uh, 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 talking to their, their own customers effectively is really where I spend most of the time. So we come up with, um, so the principles everyone gets, people understand that they have to do business plans and business cases, and those are just, you know, very heavyweight things that don't really work. So tools like Lean Canvas and the traction model and, and being able to do some simple simple forecasts are much more effective. And so that, that everyone kind of agrees with that. It's just comparing it to business plan, it seems like an easy win. Um, where they tend to struggle with is who talks to customers, right? So who goes outside the building, who has permission, um, you know, who, who, who gets to ask them the questions. And so that's where I spend more, more of my time working with these companies. And there are many different solutions. We can outline a few of them. So some of the bigger companies I work with have created internal accelerators. Um, the idea is to un- realize that innovation doesn't happen at the same scale, at the same speed in all in all cases. There are going to be core business products that are very short term and are all about you know, Wall Street earnings or uh, um, uh, uh, shareholder returns. And those things uh, are typically not 
uh, are, are things that are already in place and you may not want to, to mess with them too much. And then you have your horizon two and three, which are more far reaching ideas. And that's where I find a lot of the sweet spot for these ideas. When there's lots of uncertainty, when there's potential solutions or problems or customers you want to go explore, um, you can apply a lot of these techniques to get some small scale validation very quickly. So that's usually the entry point and it follows much the same process as let's create a canvas, let's kind of sketch these ideas out on, on this canvas, let's see how it all comes together. Let's create some multiple variants because executing on one idea may not yield the, the best result. Let's look at some alternatives. Um, and that's the planning phase. Once we have that, we have to start customer validation. So let's find a way to run an experiment with a customer. And the good news is that in theory, many of these corporates already have customers. And so in theory, they should never fail if they have if they can find effective ways of learning from those customers. And so that's where we spend a bunch of time is how do you really structure those conversations? How do you really um, you know, protect your brand, protect your, uh, your revenue? Um, there are a lot of tactics there. Um, but if you can overcome those, you actually end up building things in small scale, proving they work, and then rolling them out, um, which is, again, counter to how big companies work. Big companies think that because they're big, everything they launch has to be launched in a big way. And that's one of the fundamental mind shifts that we we try to instill is that um, every every idea has a life cycle and it actually helps to give yourself permission to scale in stages than try to just go to scale immediately, which is usually not a not a not a very uh, smart idea. And do do you find you usually have to? Does, it's a new team because you mentioned the accelerators. So I always use the example of it's like having a, a Netflix growing inside a blockbuster where you're actually trying to bring this new mindset. Are they new people or are they mavericks from within the traditional company? Yes. So, so every company has a different culture. And so I've seen different different, different combinations work. Um, so in some of the companies I work with, um, they, are, they actually run an internal accelerator and they invite any employee to submit an idea. Um, and the submission process is simple. You create a lean canvas. You get 10 minutes with the innovation team or with an executive and you kind of essentially share your idea with them. Um, and this is where you talk not just about the idea, but the potential of the idea. So it would be like a pitch, but it's more kind of driven on kind of the lean canvas and how you might go test the idea. Um, at the end of it, if, you're, if your idea is promising, you get a little bit of money. And when I, by money, I mean time. So you get maybe three months, a quarter's worth of time where you can you know, essentially stop your, your day responsibilities and go explore this idea. Uh, you may have an ask for sort of team members and you go off and do it. So that's one model. Um, and that's worked really well with some of the companies I've seen. Um, in other places where the DNA isn't really there, where it's they feel like they have to go externally or they're working on tech that is so far out. So if I take a bank, uh, things like blockchain, for instance, some of those happen internally, but sometimes it's easier to go find startups that are doing things with blockchain. And so that's another model where a big company might say, here's a tech like blockchain, or here are some problems we'd like to solve, really hard problems, um, and let's bring in an accelerator, but we'll do an external accelerator where we'll get startups from the outside, come and work on these problems, and if there's something interesting there, we'll just acquire them or we'll invest in them. You know, all kinds of possibilities end up um, as a result of that. So, so again, different combinations, both internal and external, can work. Um, it just many times depends on the culture of the company and also the environment in which they're operating. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And the last question for you, and we're just wary of your time, is you talk, you, you talk often about 
when you launch an experiment that your early adopters can often come from somebody who may follow your blog, for example. Because the, the power of content marketing, of which you were a king, is is so important these days. And it's probably a question you're not asked that much, but I see how, I mean, your own your own company, LeanStack.com now, has actually grown out of this passion that you had to create content and to actually advise and help others for free. And even, like, if I'm correct, when you launched Running Lean, you, you used almost the, the Dropbox approach of having the book on and see if there was enough interest, an image of the book, and see if there was enough interest in the book to buy it before you actually went and, and got the book published. Is that correct? Sure. Yep, that's that's exactly right. Yeah, I love that, man, because I actually said that to so many people I know who were writing books. I said, you should see what this guy did, did Ash Mora. He, he put the picture up and he, and he just measured how many clicks were on the book and then actually went, okay, there's enough interest here. But but your your use of content marketing, of your own content, is is so clever in that you're, you're basically reassuring your your market, your customer, and also your peers of your own uh, ability all the time, but also including them in that voyage at all times as well. Could sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, and 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 that you know. So I I will just say that it doesn't have to always be content marketing, but in principle, I find that to establish a a a a leading position in your field, if you can out teach your competition, then you also out learn them, and it's 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 pretty counterintuitive, and that's really why I started blogging too. Is that I found that as I wrote these blog posts, I understood the topic better. And so I actually got better. And as a result of the comments and, and questions that I got, I realized that there were still maybe some flaws in my thinking. And that was another nice feedback loop. So going back to the book example, when I decided to write the book, um, I first thought I would just write it like a typical author, which is lock myself up in, in my room for six months or a year and just crank out pages. And I found one, it was very hard to do. And two, I had more questions than answers. And so I just came up with this approach, which is let's do some of the teaser page things you talked about. But even more important, I began to run workshops. I began to do talks. I went in and taught everything that was going to be in the book before I actually wrote the book. And in the process of doing that, I learned a ton. So because I had to organize my own thoughts, um, the book became easier to write. But more importantly, because the people that were I was exposing this to had feedback and questions and comments um, that consciously and sometimes unconsciously changed the book as well. And so at the end, I actually wrote a book through those iterations because I was um, testing with my readers all along the way. So when the book was out, it was no surprise that it was well received because they actually helped me write it. So it was it was co it was a co-creation process. So that's so so whether it's content marketing or it's you know doing videos or it's just you know classic white papers or doing consulting. Um, I just look at it more as if you can build a continuous feedback loop with your customers, you win. Um, and if you can kind of shorten the cycle times of learning, you'll win as well because you will get all this feedback um, coming to you and you end up refining and doing those course correcting I talked about. And eventually one day you'll have this product that wouldn't just work with the dozens or hundreds of customers you're testing with, but it will extrapolate out to the hundreds of thousands or millions, depending on kind of your your reach and and, uh, and ambition for product. Yeah, no, that makes sense, man. About the the constant learning, because it's one thing I've noticed with every innovator and every entrepreneur I've spoken to is they are constant learners. Do Do you have any last advice for people 
books to read or people to follow that you learn from yourself? Yeah, so I, I have you know tons of classic books that I can I can rat out here, but instead what I tend to do and, and is probably what I will advise people to do is really you know baseline where your learning really is and what and so maybe I'll take a step back. When I pick up a book, I pick it up to solve a problem, and it's kind of sad. And even if I if I'm reading a fictional book, um, it's because I want to you know kill time or stress or be entertained. So there's still something there. But this is this applies more to nonfiction. So I would say with nonfiction, I don't pick a book just because it looks interesting. I pick a book to apply it, and that book will differ based on what what obstacles or problems I'm currently facing. So if I'm trying to launch a new product, I might pick up a marketing book because I want to understand. When I did my my book launch, I read a ton about book launches, and so figure out the best sources for uh, for solutions for the problem you're encountering and go learn from them. It doesn't also have to just be a book. You could go and try to find an advisor. You could go and try to reach out. I talked to a bunch of successful authors before I I wrote my own book to understand what the process was like, you know, what marketing should look like, um, you know, does content marketing work? You know, I had a whole bunch of questions and that's a very effective way for short-circuiting your learning. So that's what I would recommend is identify um, the few things that you need to get done. So the few riskiest assumptions in your business or the few constraints or bottlenecks that are holding you back and really just focus on solving those and search for a whole bunch of solutions. So don't just think you have the answer um, really understand that problem, going back to love the problem, not your solution. Really understand what you're trying to achieve, what the problem is, and go look for solutions, whether that's in a book, whether that's in a YouTube video, whether that's um, you know picking up the phone and, and trying to reach somebody who may have the answer. Um, and if you do that, I guarantee you, you, you again, shorten your, your cycle times towards um, finding something that will work. I love that, man. That's a, a lovely way to wrap up uh, loving the problems and you're, you're actually living that with your own, uh, your own education, self-education. Ash, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, people can find you on the leanstack.com, running lean, running lean hq.com is where they can find the book and, uh, your ashmoira.com and also Twitter ashmoira. Is there anywhere else people can find you, Ash? That's uh that, no, those are all all the great places, and usually everything is on leanstack.com. So if that's the only domain you want to remember, just leanstack will uh, will get you to all those other places. Brilliant, man! Well, it's an absolute pleasure talking to you, and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Aiden. Thanks, Ash. So now on the Innovation Show, it's a great honor to welcome Damien Brown, CEO and founder of Standard Access. Welcome to the show, Damien. Thanks, Ed, and thanks very much for having me on. It's much appreciated. I thought it was such a valuable idea, particularly when we move to this access ownerless world where people are sharing their houses, sharing their properties, etc. And Standard Access is a perfect model for that world. So before we, we talk about the business itself, let's talk about you and how you got to it. Well, I spent almost all my career in commercial real estate, uh, managing portfolios of commercial property across Ireland, UK and Spain. And it was just the day-to-day challenges of trying to manage a lot of different sites in different countries and uh, the problems it, it caused. That kind of led me to develop uh, the solution. The problems that I encountered are the same problems that every property manager in the world encounters. And managing leases and even collecting rent all require a physical presence and to authenticate people. And I was just trying to figure out a way for a long, long time. There must be technology out there to make this job easier and more cost-effective. 
And then the recession came, my business suffered hugely, and I lost about 30% of my tenants uh, between 2008 and 2011. Uh, the other two-thirds, I had to drop the rent by about half just to keep them to manage cash flow. There was a, a very lean period for a few years, and I was just pulling my hair out, you know, thinking there must be an easier way of doing this. I got kind of, a, kind of a, I suppose, a light bulb moment in late 2013, early 14. Um, I thought, you know, wouldn't it be great if you could use uh, a medium like uh, mobile phones to manage the tenants and manage the buildings and access to the, to the buildings. I went to the local Enterprise Ireland uh, office in Tralee and I discussed it with the manager, uh, Jerry Maloney, within the first five minutes of telling Jerry what I, what I, what, who I was and what I wanted to do. He said, you know, this is something that I think we could back down. And I thought, great. And he said, you know, I... I said, Jerry, I'm probably going to have to go abroad to get this type of hardware product built. He said, um, there's a industrial gateway in the college in Chile. There's about 10 of them around the country in the different ITs, and they all specialize in different areas of expertise. And fortunately for me, the one in Chile is called IMAR, and that stands for Industrial Mechatronics and Radio Frequency Identification. And it is exactly the type of expertise that I needed. So he introduced me to the people in the college there. as Alton McCarthy, was a manager, and... Dr. Pat Doody. I went and met him and explained that I wanted software, like an enterprise level dashboard. Facilities managers and landlords could upload all their properties and kind of like deft that uh, guests or potential tenants uh, could come along and select the type of property they wanted, location, size, budget, duration, etc. And the window would pop up then, we'll say, from Stripe or PayPal, and uh, people enter their credit, could enter their credit card details and make a payment for the amount of time, the amount of space they want to use for a certain amount of time. And if they made a successful transaction for the real estate they wanted to use, that the keys would be generated by the backend server and sent out to their phone. So during that meeting, uh, they, they said, yeah, Damon, that's the easy part about hardware to open doors. You know, there's smart locks on the market. And they were just coming into the market at the time, and they were all uh, Bluetooth-enabled and NFC. And uh, I just remember saying to the, to, the, to the two gentlemen, I said, you know, I hate Bluetooth because uh, pairing issues and it drops frequently frequently when you're out of range of a device, especially with hands-free in the car. And they need software updates. And, you know, if you've got Bluetooth low emissions, you've got 4.0, 3.0, 2.0, you know, not everybody's going to have the latest, greatest smartphone to work with your hardware. I didn't really want to pursue a Bluetooth device. And as well as that Bluetooth, you know, it's, it's on all the time. So then we looked at NSC and at the time NSC wasn't available on, on the Apple iPhone system. Uh, so I dismissed that. So I suggested to the guys, I said, you know, I said, you remember years ago when cell phones became popular, uh, you could, it was ads on TV and download this uh, ringtone. I said, Wouldn't, would it be possible? I said, you know, send a text message uh, with sound to say, hi, I'm Aidan McCullen, and I'm allowed access into this building. You could send that information to a door, and the door would say, okay, yeah, that's definitely Aidan, that's that I mean. So we signed a contract sometime after that, and uh, they built me a prototype. We had proof of concept uh, within about three months. The beauty about using the sound was that, first of all, it's cross-compatible. Every phone in the world has a microphone and a speaker. But also, with sound, uh, you can encrypt it. It's way more secure and robust than Bluetooth or NLC. Anybody with a smartphone can use our protocol. It gives us a, a, a huge competitive advantage. So, you know, um, typically how a user could use our system is that they download the app. They would log in like you would a banking app. And our um, app 
takes mine certain information from your phone that's unique to your smartphone. And you then go ahead and you get access to the properties. And that access would be determined uh, in each case by the client of standard access, a landlord with warehouses or offices or a hotel or apartments or whatever it may be. And they would dictate the permissions-based policy then gave out keys or to sell rooms or to rent them out or whatever it may be. So, for example, say it was you, Aiden, and you downloaded the app uh, for, 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 to, to get access to a property and you selected the property you went, you went through the drop-down menus and you made your payment or you, you got your authentication if, if payment wasn't necessary and uh, it was a successful transaction. Our back-end server would take on board that information, would send information out to, the, to the each doors that you've bought access to, if you know what I mean. And so part of the key is sent out to each door uh, and the other part of the key is sent out to your phone. I'll just take a step back and I, I just, when, we, when, I, when I spoke to the college in Tralee and I, we spoke about the different protocols you could use, Bluetooth and NIC, and then we, we agreed that uh, they'd investigate, investigate the use of sound because of its uh, cross-compatibility that everybody, everybody can use it. Uh, a big issue uh, with the products on the market at the time was battery power. And the Bluetooth locks on the market at the time were being built mainly for the home automation business. And they still are today. They're pretty good at that. And But the problem is, is that batteries run out after a lot of time, after about three months or four months. While that may be okay in a residential environment where you might only have four or five users, in a commercial environment, uh, if you try to position that product in a commercial environment, uh, it, would be, it would not be acceptable because you'd have a much higher churn of people going through the doors and the batteries wouldn't last very long at all. So that's why we decided about sound. But the protocol of using Bluetooth, Bluetooth is on all the time. And uh, if when, when a product is on all the time, it affects the battery. Uh, so the biggest problem was, the two biggest problems were protocol and power. So I said to the college, I said, look, let's build a smart hub that we fit beside a door that's connected to the mains electricity. And then we can have uh, and it's connected to the Wi-Fi, and then uh, we can have a lock, a smart lock, which is really a dumb lock, and it'll only speak when spoken to. So I, I was just, as I was saying to you a few moments ago, when someone um, logs on, downloads the app, logs in, selects a property, and pays for the, pro- for the use of that property, then when they approach the property and take their phone out and press the key, a burst of audio is sent from the app, and that's a burst of encrypted audio. And that's a one-off key. It changes every time. It's like a little Snapchat uh, burst of audio. Brilliant. And uh, it's, it's sent to the, um, to, the, to the smart hub. And the smart hub has already been told that Aiden's allowed through this door. So it deciphers the bit of encrypted audio that comes from your phone. It says, okay, we well, you know this is Aiden McCullen because it's, these are the information we got from him and his phone when he logged in. It, um, send, it deciphers it says, yes, this is him. And it sends another burst of, uh, of audio to the lock until it's locked open. And it does that in about 0.2 of a second. When you send that burst of audio the first time from your phone, that's a, a, a unique uh, one-out, one-time key. And when you do that, the Wi-Fi tells the backend server that key has been used. So it can't be used again. Someone can't come along and record it and play it, play it back. Really? It won't open. And it'll send a, a warning off to, to us and to the client that someone has tried an illegal entry. Brilliant. I, I, did the university do all this for you? A prototype 
that I could go and show to uh, potential investors or potential clients. Gotcha. So it was it was rough and ready, but it was exactly what what, wow. what they said they could do and what I what I wanted. Um, the smart club uh, part of it came afterwards. Uh, they gave me a lock and they gave me um, just trying to think all the time what it was, but you know they, they did a good job for me. I have to say. It was great that, you know, the, the particular expertise that yeah. I needed at the time was, was so local. Serendipity. Yeah. And, and just, just Absolutely. okay, so, so I, I totally, I'd say our audience totally get how you, you basically constructed the whole thing, the back end, et cetera, the encryption, the security. Just, just let's take a, a journey through here as if I'm a user now. So I'm, I'm a guy off the yeah. street. I'm, let's use this. I'm an Airbnb guy. I, I have an apartment that, is really awkward for me to to get out to to rent out. It's the far side of the city. It takes me an hour to get across the city in rush hour traffic. That's unfortunately when people come off the airplane and, and get there. So now, using standard access, I can actually give them encrypted uh, one-off access into my property. No worries at all. All I have to do is buy the lock and download the app. That's all. And sign up, of course. That's that's yeah. my journey as a user. Exactly. So I do that my side. What does the recipient do? So the person who's leasing my Airbnb property. So in a situation like that, uh, they you could send them a link. They download this app, and they would set their own little account. And uh, in that situation, you know, you'd be setting up for them to be the to the to be the user. Yeah. And uh, you would give them a, it's time restricted access key basically. Yeah. So you issued them with a ferrisol from the first of March to the seventh of March in Dublin. Aidan's apartment is going to be rented to uh, Pierre Cardin from Paris, <laughs> and uh, Pierre then Pierre then can give his wife and his two kids uh, access to their smartphones as well. Brilliant. If that if that's a love if that's a love you want, like that's up to you to decide. Absolutely, that's fantastic. And that because because just looking at it that way, so I totally get. And I love where you came from, your background. I totally get this. Your, your, your evolution from being the estate agent with a problem, and you, you, you focused on the problem rather than the solution. Because we have Ash Moira on this show as well, who wrote Running Lean and Lean Stack um, website, and does the Lean Canvas. And he talks about this obsession with the problem rather than the solution. And you obsessed over that problem for years to find the solution and then you waited and this perfect serendipity of the the right people being on your doorstep like an unbelievable story really of being on your doorstep in Kerry and being able to deliver you that prototype is just brilliant but just taking a, a zooming up now in a helicopter and looking down you are now like in prime position to be acquired by an Airbnb or several chains of estate agencies across the world but you probably don't even need to because you're you're so useful to all of those companies. You're so useful to anybody who's doing property. And I love your video on standardaccess.co where there's a guy out playing golf and bang, he gets a, a little notification. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's a bit cheesy. It's a bit cheesy. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a tiny bit cheesy. And the guy actually is very, very, uh, very Robert De Niro looking guy. Uh, <laughs> and uh, he gets his notification. Bam! He's a uh, big smile on his face. He's delivered his properties open and uh, more money in the bank. But you can see, you can see now the intelligence behind it. And then to get your story of how you got there is just a brilliant story. And um, 
So are you are you are you looking for funding at the moment, Damien? Damien, or where are you on this on the journey? Uh, yeah, we are, Aiden. Uh, we've had some funding in the past. At the moment, we're just trying to close out a seed round. We've uh, been approved for match funding from Enterprise Ireland. We're looking for a relatively small amount of money. We're looking for one hundred and sixty-five thousand from from private some, some from some private investors, uh, and that being matched by the same amount again from Enterprise Ireland. And it's just it's enough money to get our testing finished with a select group of clients in uh, Paris, Lisbon, London, and here in Ireland. Those clients are in two two definite uh, they're in two verticals in the social housing space and in co-working. Um, and they're the two verticals we're focusing on for our launch because, as you you said there a few minutes ago, it's applicable to any um, any real estate market in the world uh, where you have a high turn rate. We'll have our beta testing finished by June and we can launch the market in July, August, where our first trial uh, begins next month in London. After that, then we'll look at other uh, geographical areas. A new type of market has come into play in the last couple of years because of Airbnb. And that, and this is the vacation host management companies. These new companies have sprung up uh, on the back of the success of Airbnbs. And they're managing uh, bookings for people. They're managing the emails, the phone calls, the inquiries, and the meet and greet, and the cleaning of the properties. These companies' biggest problem because of their own success is um, the amount of lab- people, freelance laborers, or professional labor that they hire to do the meet and greet and checkouts. So for example, if it was London or Paris or any city, Sunday morning or Saturday morning, Sunday morning usually is the biggest uh, checkout morning in uh, of, of the week. These companies might be managing two or 3,000 units in a big city and they might only have 50 staff on. So trying to do uh, a, a changeover of keys and try and get keys after the guests are departing is impossible, obviously. And then those the problems that arise out of that, the keys go missing. They are left with a, a neighbor or they're left with someone who shouldn't have the keys, an unwelcome guest or whatever it is. And that causes other problems. Yeah, and and, the secu- and then you add in your security layer and your your obsession over that security with the the encryption of the audio, and the the amount of work you did on that, and that makes it a foolproof foolproof tool. Yeah, Damien, how can people get in touch? You mentioned uh, the funding. I'm sure people are going to get in touch with you over that. I know the website's www.standardaccess.co. Where else can people yeah, get in touch? With- uh, Damien, D-A-M-I-E-N, at standardaccess.co, at Damien Brown on Twitter, at standardaccess on Twitter. We wish you the very, very best of luck. Right. I'm sure people will be in touch. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much, Ed, and appreciate it. Thank you.